Grab your Bibles, if you would, and let's go uh, to Acts chapter number two. Acts chapter two, we're in a six-week series called A Disciple's Journey. We're looking at five dispositions of a disciple of Jesus. And this morning, we're gonna look at what it means for us to be a plugged-in type of disciple, a plugged-in type of disciple. We've looked at eyes up and knees down and Bible open. This morning, we're gonna talk about being plugged in and, and say, what do you mean when you say plugged in? Being a plugged in disciple simply means that we're relationally invested, that we're relationally invested. Now, this phrase here is important because we don't want people to just attend church. We want you to belong to the church, amen? amen. We want you to be invested in relationships and other relationships invested into you, that you're a part of giving your life to the mission of God Um, through this thing called the local church. And so this is the type of disciple that we want to become, a plugged-in, relationally invested disciple because there's a mission that God has called us to do and we're called to do it together. And we've gotta do it together, otherwise it can't be done. Uh, A couple weeks ago, I I shared with you that I was uh, in New York with Pastor Matt and one of the things we got to do while we were in New York is we got to go to the 9-11 memorial, the museum there. So, Uh, It was kind of special, I've gone before, but it was special this time around just simply because it was so close to the 21st anniversary of this tragic event. And and one of the things that just captured me at at this uh, museum is just the reminder of how all of the people from different walks of life on that dark day came together on a singular mission to rescue the survivors that were there. And because of the, of the fearless work of the firefighters and other first responders and police officers and the medical personnel and, and, and uh, engineers and everyone else that got involved, uh, con- construction workers, there were hundreds and hundreds of lives that were saved that would not have been saved otherwise because they rallied together using the diversity of gifts and personalities and background for one common goal to accomplish a mission, which was what? Pulling people out from the rubble in order to rescue them. In fact, I, didn't wanna, I wanna do something. I was reminded, it was, it was at the museum and watching and remembering the stories again of just how grateful I am for all of our first responders, our law enforcement, our medical uh, personnel, and our firefighters. In fact, if you're a firefighter or a, in the medical field or a police officer, uh, I wanna ask you to stand, if you would, in the room. If you are in the, in the first response um, industry at all, or, or it, do that at all, stand up, if you would. Let us just celebrate you today. We are grateful for you. We're grateful for you. In, in days like today, we are reminded of just how blessed as a society and culture we are because you are here and uh, we are, are super, super grateful for you. But, but as I remembered this um, event, and you saw all of these people coming together, it was just a reminder to me of what the church is supposed to be. That the church is supposed to be a group of people who are connected together, relationally invested, who are plugged into doing life with one another, and God has sent us on a rescue mission, amen? that we together working as one are sent to, to uh, work together to go and reach people who are far from him. And by the way, just as in 9-11, that was a tragic event and there was destruction right in front of our eyes. You just need to know that spiritually speaking, we are living in the midst of destruction today. And it is a destruction that's far worse than 9-11 ever imagined to be. It is a destruction of souls for eternity. 
And so what we have been called to is a rescue mission as the church of Jesus to unite together, to be a a faith family who is on mission of going into the brokenness of the world on a rescue mission to pull people out of the rubble of sin and and, and slavery to, to addictions and to see that they are rescued into a relationship with Jesus Christ. But this demands that we are connected together and that we are plugged in, that we are relationally invested on this mission Together, And that's what we're going to look at this morning. So Acts chapter 2, we're going to start reading in verse 42 through 47. If you're there, say, the Bible is true. It says this, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and uh, distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts and praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, I think it's important that we understand the backdrop of Acts chapter two, verse 42. This this section here records for us the dawn of the New Testament church. That the New Testament church, you see, I wouldn't say the birth of it, but what you see now is the spirit-filled church of Jesus established, and we get a description of what they did. But it's important that we understand what led to this moment. So if you go back in Acts chapter one, here's what you're gonna see. You're gonna see that the disciples come to Jesus after his resurrection, before he ascended to heaven, and they ask this question, are you now gonna gonna usher in the kingdom? Are you now gonna set up your throne in Jerusalem and overthrow the Roman Empire and, and you're gonna establish this kingdom on earth? And Jesus stops the disciples and he says to them, yes, yes, the kingdom of God is here, but it's not like you think. He says, the time for that to happen is really not for you to know, but here's what you need to know. You need to go and make disciples. You need to go and multiply yourself into the life of others. You need to go and expand the kingdom of God by making disciples. And he says, look, you're gonna receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and then you're gonna go and be my witnesses. You're gonna go and tell the world that the kingdom of God is here and that they can enter into the kingdom through the gospel that I have given you. And then here's what Jesus does. Jesus ascends to the heavens and the disciples, they take this message, this this message of the kingdom, and they go to what's called the upper room. And for 10 days, they fast and they prayed because Jesus told them, you will receive power from the Holy Spirit. And so they fast and they prayed for 10 days. In the middle of that 10-day prayer meeting, the heavens opened up, the Holy Spirit falls and fills the church of Jesus. They leave the upper room filled with the Holy Spirit. They engage the world around them and immediately the world notices there's something different with this group of believers and they begin to preach the word of God to the crowds and 3,000 people give their life to Jesus. It's an incredible day. It's an incredible story. That this is the day that the New Testament church filled with the Holy Spirit dawned. And here, here's what's amazing. If you think about that story, you can see the dispositions that we've been walking through, the traits of disciples, right? They were eyes up, kingdom focused. What were they saying? Jesus, when are you gonna bring your kingdom to earth? And Jesus is saying, hey, the kingdom is here. Now what you're talking about will come. Your responsibility now is to go advance the kingdom by being witnesses. So they were eyes up. They were kingdom focused. And then it says they went up to the upper room and they prayed for 10 days. They were also knees down. They were spiritually dependent upon the Holy Spirit to give them a supernatural power that they did not have 
in and of themselves. So they were eyes up, kingdom focused, they were knees down, they were spiritually dependent, and when the Holy Spirit moved, they ran into the streets, and what did they do? They proclaimed the gospel. They preached the word of God. They were Bible opened. They were biblically grounded. When the community was saying to them, hey, what is this thing that's happening? What do they do? They take God's word and begin to show them the scriptures that tell them, here is what's happening in your midst today. They were biblically grounded. And so you see this eyes up, knees down, Bible open type of disciple, 3,000 people come to faith in Christ, receive the Holy Spirit, and what do they immediately do? They became plugged in disciples. They became disciples who were relationally invested. Because here's the question we've gotta ask, what do disciples of Jesus do who are eyes up, knees down, plugged in? What is the church of Jesus supposed to do? Well, listen to the description again in Acts chapter two, verse 42. It says this, and they devoted themselves. They were together devoted. They were, we're gonna see in a moment, devoted to God's word, devoted to one another. They were devoted to the mission of God. But here's a description of a plugged in disciple. They are devoted. The word devoted here is a strong word. The idea is they are deeply committed. The the picture is thoroughly devoted, continuously devoted. There was a deep sense of commitment to the community that we now call the local church. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. This is day one of the New Testament church. They haven't gone to any conferences. They haven't gone to learn about, okay, what is the church polity? What is this thing supposed to look like? And yet, Luke's description in Acts chapter two, as soon as the 3,000 people receive Christ or baptized, given the Holy Spirit, immediately the very first thing that these spirit-filled disciples do is they come together as the local church and there is a deep devotion to this thing that God has started in their midst. And here's what that does for you and me. That tells us that if we're gonna be a church that's eyes up, that's knees down, that's Bible open, then we must become a plugged in church. We must become a church where we are described as devoted. We are committed to this thing that God is doing. And what we're learning here is that Christianity, now watch this, Christianity, though it has been, in our American culture, been so marked by rugged individualism that we have kind of minimize this thing that God is doing in the world as about me and God or me and Jesus, that's a concept that was foreign to the early church. Like you see throughout the scriptures that what God has done in his redemption is he is forming a people, not a person. If you go back in Genesis chapter one, when you see the cultural mandate, when he creates Adam and Eve, he reminds Adam and Eve, hey, this isn't about you. What was the command he gave them? Be fruitful and fill the earth and subdue it. What is he saying here? God is reminding them, my my intention has always been to gather a people that belong to me. Not just a person that belongs to me, a people that belong to me. What do you see when the Abrahamic covenant is given to Abraham? So Abraham is visited by God and God says to him, hey, I'm gonna bless you and through you there's gonna be a blessing. What was the blessing? There's gonna be a nation and that nation is gonna bless the world. And so God's promise to Abraham is not that I'm gonna bless you, but through you I'm gonna form a people that's gonna bless the world. It's always been about a people. When God took Moses out of Egypt and prepared him for the, the exodus, what does he tell Uh, Moses, when he sends him back to Egypt, go and get my people. 
What do you see Jesus do the moment his ministry starts? He calls disciples. Why? He's gathering a people. And what's the last thing he tells his people to do when he departs? Go and gather more people. Believer, hear me say this. I love the fact that you have a personal relationship with Jesus, but your personal relationship with Jesus connects you to a greater body of believers in Jesus. And it's not just about you and Jesus. It's about us and what Jesus is doing through his, his body called the church local. This is the heartbeat. And you see this later on. Look at verse uh, 47. It says, and the Lord added to the number Day by day, those who were being saved. For some reason, when I've read that passage, I've only really focused on the fact that people were being saved, and I missed the first part of the verse. Notice the first part of the verse. And the Lord added to their number. In other words, the number of what? The number of those who were devoted. The church was adding. So every new person that was coming to faith in Christ, they weren't just becoming individual Christians living individual lives, is that when they were saved, they were added to the number. They became connected, relationally invested in the local church. God's plan has always been to form a people and his, his will for the people is for us to, the power of the Holy Spirit through the work of Jesus to be devoted to one another and to his mission together. This is why you'll, have, you'll be hard-pressed, check this out, to find a believer in the New Testament that's not connected to a local church. Just think about it. When God wanted to speak to Christians in the New Testament, well, who does he write to? He writes to the local church. Even when Paul writes to Timothy, what is he writing to Timothy about? He's writing to Timothy about the local church. When God wants to speak, he doesn't speak to just to individuals. He speaks to his people. I love what Tony Marita says about this in a commentary. He, he writes this about this passage. He says, the church is God's plan. And that plan is bigger than the random conversion of a few individuals. Christianity is personal, but it's not individualistic. It's corporate. Jesus is saving a people for himself. This fact is made plain here in Acts chapter two. It has also been emphasized in Acts chapter one. As the people gather together, the communal nature of the church is reiterated throughout the New Testament and is illustrated by the fact that the epistles or letters were written to the churches uh, or in reference to the church. So, so listen, th th this is, is God's will for your life to be plugged in as a disciple to the local church being devoted together. Now here's the question we've gotta ask, all right? I get it, I see devoted, I know we're supposed to be plugged in. What are we supposed to be devoted to? What does this thing called the church look like? What are we supposed to be doing? I'm glad you asked because Paul, uh, Peter, or Luke rather, I'll get it right. Luke gives us an answer to this. I want you to see this. Together, they were devoted to four things. I want you to write these down. They were devoted to four things. Here's number one. They were devoted to the preaching and teaching of God's word. It says that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. So this early church, the moment they received Christ, the moment they received the Holy Spirit, they were devoted to the word of God. They became a Bible open type of disciple immediately. And specifically to the preaching and the teaching of God's word to the apostles. So they were devoted to doing what you're doing, sitting under the teaching of God's word, to reading the scriptures, to studying God's word. They were devoted to this. Here's number two. They were devoted to sharing life with one another. They were devoted to sharing life with one another. It says, and the fellowship. They were devoted to the fellowship. Now, the word fellowship is not like we think of fellowship. We think of fellowship like a set gathering for us to eat together and hang out and have a good time. 
But fellowship is the word koinonia. It means a people, a people that are connected. When it says the, it's a definite article, the fellowship, what he's saying is they were committed and devoted to one another. They saw the common connection they share with Christ and there was a deep devotion to doing life with the church, with other believers. They didn't just attend on Sunday, they did life every day of the week. Here's number three, not just sharing life, uh, they were devoted to remembering and celebrating the gospel. They were devoted to remembering and celebrating the gospel. When he says here, to the breaking of bread, this is a reference to the Lord's Supper. So as the church would gather, one of the things that they would do is they would stop and they would take the bread and they would break it and they would take the cup and they would drink of it and here's what they were doing. They were remembering and celebrating the gospel. You see, the center of our relationship is the gospel of Jesus, amen? What brings us together, the one thing, the, the thing that we have in common and all the diversity, you've heard me preach this for years, in the midst of the crazy diversity we have of, of differences in this room, there's one common link that brings us together and it's the one common link that'll link us for all eternity and that is we are all in desperate need of forgiveness and grace and we've all found that at the feet of Jesus, amen? amen. This is what makes us who we are. Not our good works, but the finished work of Jesus. So they were devoted to remembering. This is why the Lord's Supper is something that the local church does together. The Lord's Supper is an institution that's not been given to the Christian, but to the church. We gather, and this Wednesday night at prayer meeting, we're gonna have communion. I would encourage you to come be a part of that. We're gonna remember, and we're gonna celebrate the gospel of Jesus on Wednesday night. Hope you'll come be a part of that. They were devoted to this. The last is this. They were devoted to gathering corporately to pray. They were devoted to gathering corporately to pray. Now, I want you to look at that language here. It says this. It says, and they were devoted to the prayers. Now, we have a Wednesday night gathering called The Prayer. And people have asked me, why do you, like, that's a weird name. Why do you call it The Prayer? And here's the answer. That's what they called it in Acts. And uh, if you go into Acts chapter 6, as the church grew and the needs of the church were expanding, the apostles were so busy they couldn't devote themselves to the things that were most important. So what do they do? They established deacons in the church and here's what they said. We can't get occupied with all of the, the serving of the church because we have to be devoted to preaching and we've gotta be devoted to specifically the prayer. The definite article in this sentence matters because this is not a reference to individual private prayer, although that's important and it's evident in the scripture that every believer should pray on their own, amen? This is a reference to the gathering of prayer, of God's church coming together. This is what the apostles in chapter six were devoting themselves to, of bringing the people together. And you see this evidenced throughout the book of Acts that the church of Jesus would regularly gather together for the purpose of prayer. You also see this in evidence in church history. So when we gather on Wednesday nights, this is not just something new we're doing. This is us realigning ourselves with what the scripture says we should be devoted to, amen? I'm gonna talk more about that in just a little bit, but this is what we should be devoted to. Now here's the second question we should be asking. So what are we devoted to? The next question should be is, what happens when we're devoted to this? What, what does church look like? What does church become when we're devoted to this? Well, we get a description of this in the scriptures. Because of their devotion, I want you to see four outcomes. 
Because of their devotion, number one, God's presence was experienced. How many of you want to experience God's presence as the people of God? Amen? It says in verse 43, it says this. It says, and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. What is it, what is it describing there? Verse 43 is describing that the presence of God was in their midst, and they were experiencing it. Like in a very real way, that there was a sense of awe, fear of the Lord, an awareness of his presence. And this wasn't just, by the way, from the church. It was those outside the church. Like even the community was watching this, this group of people that they didn't really understand as the church. But as they were watching this, they were going, something supernatural is happening. Like they were mesmerized at the power that they were seeing displayed through the presence of God. Here's number two. Authentic love and unity was enjoyed. Authentic love and unity was enjoyed. Look at the description of the early church because of their devotion, verse 44. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Now stop there for a second. Had all things in common. What was crazy about this is that if you, if you go back in chapter two, earlier on in chapter two, one of the reasons that God demonstrated the coming of the Holy Spirit through the, the, the languages and the speaking in tongues in that Acts chapter two passage is because Pentecost was a gathering where Jews from all over the world who spoke different languages came together to worship. And so God gave the supernatural gift of tongues on that day so that the languages of the nations that were there, they might understand in their own native tongue. Now, why is that so important? It says, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. How in the world could people from all over the world, different dialects, different ethnicities, different cultural backgrounds, how can they have all things in common? I'll tell you how, the unity of the spirit of God. You know what the world needs right now in the midst of our division? It is not necessarily just more social activism because I think we've been doing that for a while and it doesn't seem to be working as much as we think it does. You know what we need? We need the church of Jesus Christ to let our unity in Jesus trump any differences that we have, love each other with a genuine love, let the Holy Spirit develop a unity that goes far beyond our differences and as the world watches us love one another, the question's gonna be is how can we get some of that? The problem is, is that most of us, we more closely identify with our differences than we do the thing that brings us together, and that's why we stay divided. And this would change. We become this kind of a church. They believe they were together and had all things in common. Here's the next one. Genuine gratitude and worship would be expressed. Genuine gratitude and worship was expressed. Look what he says in verse 46. He says, and they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor of all the people. It's describing a church that is joy-filled. There is a sense of gratitude. Like when you're in a church and, and there's this kind of devotion and God's presence is there, that there's a genuine love and unity, I'm telling you, it spills out of your life into this gratitude. I don't know about you, but the season we've been in as a church, we've seen God move these last 18 months in ways that I would never imagine. There is such a genuine love and unity. I'm telling you, my heart has more than once just overflowed to the Lord in gratitude for what he's doing in our midst. There is a genuine and authentic worship that happens, that's expressed. And, and listen, 
This one may sting, and I want you to hear me say this. If our worship looks more like this, than just being overwhelmed with God's presence. I'm just gonna encourage you. It has nothing to do with the order of service. It has nothing to do with any of the function in this room. It has everything to do with your heart. If we are, yesterday I found myself watching a football game and, and without, with, with spun, like I'm just throwing my hands up like this. Come on, I'm not alone in that. I'm yelling to my son who's in the other room, score it again, get in here. I'm pushing pause. Let's rewind and watch that again. You know why? That which captures my heart and mind captures my emotion and my worship. Why do we look like that on Saturdays but then look like this on Sundays? And when we begin to be devoted to these things, our disposition and worship will change. It will. There's no spectators in heaven. Everyone's worshiping. And we get the opportunity to start that now, amen? All right, here's, here's the next one. I've gone way too long on those. People were connected to Jesus and new believers were engrafted. So our mission is to be people connecting people to Jesus is ever restoring life where we live, work, and play. That's our mission. And what happens in this is verse 47 says very clearly, it says, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. In other words, people were being added, people being connected to Jesus and his ever restoring life, and the people who were being connected to Jesus were also engrafted into the local church. Like, I want to see new beginnings grow, amen? Like, for those who are like, man, the church is kind of getting too big, don't you think we should slow down? No. By the way, the first church in Acts chapter two was 3,000 people on day one. By chapter five, there are 8,000, maybe up to 10 or 15,000. And it was a rapid multiplication of disciple-making disciples. Look, I want new beginnings to be as big as the Lord will allow us to be, but I don't want our growth to be other Christians just transferring over because the new thing at the church is being done because that might lead to an exit later on to something else that has some other church that has some other new thing going on. You know what I wanna see us grow by? I wanna see disciple-making disciples living passionately in the community and a church that's devoted to one another and to the mission of God. And because of that devotion, people who, are not, who do not know Jesus are being connected to Jesus and they're being engrafted into the church. And I want this house to continually be a house of infants in Christ who grow to maturity, who go make more infants through their lives. Is that what you want? God wants to use you in that process. But this is what happens. So think about this. When, when we're devoted to one another, God's presence is experienced. Authentic love and, in, and unity is enjoyed. Genuine gratitude and worship is expressed. People uh, were connected to Jesus and new believers were being grafted into the church. And this is our desire as a church. This is what we're wanting God to do. And here's the thing that I want us to wrestle with this morning. Okay, so in the New Testament, when you, when you read the Bible, in the, in the scriptures in general, when you read the Bible, there are times when what you're reading is what we'll call descriptive. 
descriptive. It's just it's telling us a story and it's describing certain things, certain things in the life of an individual, certain things in a story, certain things in the church. It's describing. And in the descriptive points of scripture, there are things that we can draw from and apply to our life and, and, and let the Holy Spirit work in us. Then there are times when there are prescriptive things in scripture. Prescriptive is when we're giving a mandate, we're giving direction. It, it should be like this, do this, walk in this, live like this. So you're with me, say uh-huh. And then there are moments when you get both descriptive and prescriptive. And I truly believe in my heart, Acts chapter two is a descriptive and prescriptive type of passage. It is describing to us what the Holy Spirit created and it is prescribing for us how we also ought to live. And so while it might not be a prescription in, hey, do these four things, you see a general idea that should apply to us in a prescriptive way. And so what we've been wrestling with as a church as we've been rewriting our mission statement over this past year is we've been asking the question, not just God, what is our mission because the Lord gave us that, but God, how do we live out Acts 2? How do we become a church that's a disciple-making factory that exists to love one another and go and love the world in your name. How do we become this church? What does it look like, watch this question, to be a plugged-in disciple at New Beginnings living out Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47? And so what we've done is through a lot of prayer and study and wrestling and creativity of just imagining our church, we've developed what we call the triangle. And so what I wanna to describe to you is basically taking Acts chapter 242 and it's, it's applying it to new beginnings. What does it look like? Because I want you to know, like, like this is who we wanna become. We wanna become a plugged in, a relationally invested body of believers that look like Acts 242. So how do we do that here? Here's the challenge we're gonna give you. I'm gonna challenge you to own the triangle. Own the triangle. Here's what I mean. Here's the triangle. I want you to know some things about the triangle. First of all, I want you to notice that this triangle is pointed outward, not upward. All right? And it's not that we don't care about upward, but we believe that because God is at work, the, the picture is, is that we're going somewhere. There's a mission that we have. There's a direction. We don't exist for just us. We exist for something bigger than us. Amen? And so there are three, three components that kind of summarize everything we've looked at in Acts chapter two, verse 42. So a plugged into disciple at New Beginnings, first of all, listen, we gather weekly. We wanna gather weekly. You see this in the book of Acts that the, the church of Jesus gathered together. It says specifically that the gathering in the temple court day by day, they were coming together regularly. And why would they go to the temple and gather? It's because there are 3,000 people for crying out loud and there is no building. So they would go to the largest place and they would assemble together and what would they would do when they assembled together is they would worship and they would listen to the preaching of the apostles and the, the community was able to observe this. So they gathered together, they assembled together. You see this continually through the scriptures that the church would gather. And then in church history, you see this more formalized, this gathering of God's people more formalized. Let me read you one historical record of this. Justin Martyr in his first apology where he is explaining the early church and, and what Christians did. He's writing in the, in the mid 180s and he's describing the New Testament church really from its conception. What did the early church do? Listen to the description that he gives. He says, on the day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gather together in one place. So they're coming together to meet. And the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets were read. In other words, they read the scriptures. They, they went to God's word. They were a Bible open type of church. 
As long as time permits, I love that part, especially for as long as I preach half the time. As long as time permits. Then, when the reader had ceased, the president, this is a reference to the pastor or the person who is leading the congregation, verbally instructs and exhorts the imitation of these good things. So what is being described here is a sermon. They would read God's word, and then when the word of God was read, they would then expound on God's word and apply it and teach it to the life of the disciples. And then it says, and then they would rise together and they would pray. There was other descriptions that he gave. They would take the Lord's Supper together. They would worship. They would lift their voice and sing. And they would do this on Sunday as they gathered. And then he tells us why. He says, but Sunday is the day on which we all hold our common assembly, our church service. Because it is the first day on which, having wrought a change in the darkness and matter, made the world. In other words, it's the first day of creation when God broke into darkness in Genesis 1. On, on, on that day, he, he, he forms this thing called creation. But not just that. There is recreation that happens on Sunday as well. It says, and Jesus Christ, our Savior, on the same day, rose from the dead. Now, this is powerful. This is powerful because it's describing to us, now check this out, this was 100s AD, he's describing the church since conception and he's describing what we experience every single week. Do you realize what we do on Sunday? It's an over a 2,000 year practice that we do together. This is rooted deeper than any other tradition you have in your life. That on the Lord's day, why do we call Sunday the Lord's day? Because it's resurrection day. It's the day that he got up from the grave. And, and what's crazy is these Jews who started worshiping on Sunday for years, decades, centuries, they worshiped on the Sabbath on Saturday. Now, I don't know about if you've been around church long enough, changing family tradition is pretty tough in a church. If you've been in a Baptist church, there have been churches that have gone to war over changing some tradition. Some churches, you can't change the order of service without some sort of fight with the deacons and whoever. I'm glad New Beginnings isn't that church. But imagine, imagine changing centuries of tradition. How in the world could a group of people do this? Let me tell you how a group of people could do this. They saw the one they followed crucified on Friday and he's alive on Sunday. That's how. It's the power of the empty tomb. And so for 2,000 years, the church of Jesus Christ has made it a priority, devoted themselves to gathering together, setting our schedule aside, and coming to the place where the preaching and teaching of God's word could be heard, where we could pray, where we could worship, where we could fellowship, we could remember the gospel, and, and, and remember that what we have done, we're a part of, is this gathering of people called the church that Jesus himself has formed. And they were devoted to this. I want you to hear my heart in this. Eyes right here just for a second. We could hardly call the church in America that anymore. We are not devoted to gathering together. Our, our, our schedules are too busy. And what I mean too busy is that our priorities are out of order. And we make every excuse under the sun of why we can't come this week or that week or for these weeks or for these months or for this season. And I wanna remind you what the writer of Hebrews wrote to the church who was under persecution. Here's what he says. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as some are in the habit of doing. Now watch the context. Hebrews chapter 10, he's writing to a group of Christians who are dying for their faith. 
that when they were assembling together, they were identifying themselves with Jesus and his people, and they were losing their homes and their jobs. They were being run out of their communities. Families were disowning them because they belonged to the church, and because of the persecution, many believers began to withdraw from Sunday gathering, withdraw from gathering with the church because of fear of persecution, and the writer of Hebrews says to them, even under those circumstances, if it costs you your family, your life, your career, whatever it is, don't stop meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. But you come together and you encourage one another even more as the day approaches. And that's a far cry from why we don't go to church today, is it not? We don't assemble ourselves together because anything under the sun. You know, it's funny about the church in America. The church in America they tell us statistically that if you have people that attend church twice every five weeks, that's your most faithful people. Like that, that would be considered devotion in American statistics. You know, at New Beginnings Baptist Church, we run about 25 to 2,700 people every week. 25 to 2,700 people. Do you know based on, and this is not just me pulling numbers out, do you realize that if, if, if the people who regularly attend our church would actually attend more like three times a month, we would average more than 5,000 people a week? Because the average attender at New Beginnings, the average attender comes once a month and they call this their church home. You say, well, man, why is it all about the numbers? Listen, the numbers tell a story. Just like you don't, when you, budget, when you balance your checkbook or you balance your financial your accounts, you're not like consumed with money. You're just being responsible, right? You wanna know where you are financially. When we look at the numbers at New Beginnings Baptist Church, you know what it tells me? By and large, we are not devoted. Why? Because we don't make gathering together a priority. We are supposed to be devoted to this and we are half-hearted at best. Church, we can do better. And here's the thing I would challenge you. I, here's, here's the thing. I don't think most Christians quite understand how irregular they are. If you would just sit down and look at your calendar and look at your, your, your track record, you would probably blow your mind to go, oh my gosh, he's talking about me. We, we've gotta be devoted. Here's number two. Gather weekly with connection time. With connection time. One of the things I love about the Acts chapter two is it says they gathered in the temple court and they met in their homes and they broke bread. And they, what, what is he describing there? They shared life together. And so what we're challenging you at New Beginnings to be a plugged in disciple, to be relationally invested, means you don't just attend the big room, you get into the small room where you can build relationships. There's connection time. You're, you're, you're getting to know people. You're discussing God's word. You're caring for one another's needs. You're holding each other accountable. There's, there's a lot of value in gathering together and we are called to do it, but this is not the end game. In the early church, they also gathered in their homes and they met and they encouraged and they shared life together. Not just with random Christians, but with the local church. So at New Beginnings, we have two avenues to connection time that we want to encourage you. If you want to be a a plugged in disciple at New Beginnings, the primary is life group. Life groups are small groups that meet on Sunday and Wednesday. Some groups meet maybe in their home, whatever fits their schedule, but it's a group of eight to 10 uh, families or, or individuals, you know, sometimes up to 20 to 25 that get together every week and they study God's word and they hold each other accountable and they pray together and they fellowship together. And then they, during the week, they're in dialogue. And if there's a need, they care for one another. This is where real life transformation happens because you hear God's word here, you process God's word here. 
as you engage in conversation, as you go deeper into the text, as you let the ser- sermon not just be something you do in the big room, it's something in the small room discussion that begins to embed in your heart. And that's the primary way that you can get connection time at New Beginnings. The secondary way are for those who are in a season whose primary calling is to serve. And because you're serving, uh, you, you don't really are able to go to a life group Many of you go to life group and you serve, and that's amazing. But for some that have the, the, the limited space, you say, I can serve, and this is the season God's called me. We're forming what's called serve groups, which are basically life groups for those who serve, and so they meet less frequently, but there is constant dialogue and communication, caring for one another, encouraging and accountability and fellowshipping together on a regular rhythm so that those who are serving, watch this, you don't get burnt out by giving. There's a space for you to receive and to be cared for. And so we want to be a church that's gathering weekly with connection time. Here's the next one. We also wanna have a corporate prayer rhythm. A corporate prayer rhythm. If you go back in Acts chapter two, what do you see? And they were devoted to the prayer, the corporate prayer. They gathered together and that's the tip of the spear. Why? Because that's what drives everything for us. Like the reason we call it the corporate prayer rhythm is two reasons. Number one, we don't know what the early church's prayer rhythm looked like. We just knew that there, we know there was one. They met regularly, sometimes daily they met together for corporate prayer. So what we have said at New Beginnings is that we have a weekly prayer gathering on Wednesday night called the prayer at 6.30 and that's our corporate prayer. And we're challenging you, if you're gonna be a plugged in disciple at New Beginnings Baptist Church, we're asking you to develop your corporate prayer rhythm. The reason we say it like that, here's the second reason, CPR, like this is the life of our church. This is where the heart work at New Beginnings happens. It is by coming into God's presence for an hour to an hour and a half, we call in his name and we worship and we learn what it looks like together to commune with the living God. His presence moves in this place in a powerful way. And what we're challenging you to do is develop your personal corporate prayer rhythm. For some of you, every single week, because that's just God has given you that heart, he's given you the space in your calendar. For some of you, it's once every other week. For some of you, maybe once a month or twice every five or six weeks. But here's my challenge. You make it a priority and find the rhythm for you and your family. And I promise you, here's the thing that I've learned about my schedule, and I think you'll probably agree with me about your schedule. The things that I prioritize get done. Hello? The things that are important to me, I seem to find a way. I don't miss my kids' ball games. You know why? I watch my calendar like a hawk. And nothing interrupts that. Like, it, it would take a tragedy for me to step out of that rhythm because my kids are a priority in my life, right? Well, if I can do that for my kids' silly ball games that are gonna be a season of their life and over forever, why in the world would I not do that with my prayer life? Why would Jesus not have at least that level of devotion? So my, my challenge for you is, is that, where is that for you? Develop that corporate prayer rhythm in your life so that you can come together with the body of believers and live plugged in. The early church, they were deeply devoted to this and the power of God moved. And I've said this and I'll continue to say it. The future of new beginnings will not be determined by what happens on Sunday. It will be directly determined by what happens on Wednesday nights. Because as prayer goes, so goes the church. Amen? I'm challenging you, find that rhythm in your life. Now, as I've talked about this, here's what I want you to know. This isn't the end game. This isn't the end game. God has given us a mission. What is that mission? That mission is to reach the world. You see, there is a cloud of people out there, and that cloud of people 
Man, they matter to the Lord. They, they are valuable. And God has placed New Beginnings Baptist Church in the community so that we can engage the world. That's why the triangle is focused outward because all of this, here's why it exists. We want to create another triangle within the triangle. And that is through these things, we want to make disciple-making disciples. And these disciple-making disciples, as you engage as a plugged-in disciple, this doesn't terminate on new beginnings. It impacts the world. And so now, these disciple-making disciples, as we are plugged in, we can go and engage the world so that day by day, people would be saved and engrafted into the local church. And so within this cloud of people called the community and the world, there are thousands of clouds Places of influence. You know why there are thousands of clouds? Because there's thousands of you. And within this big cloud, every single one of you have a sphere of influence that you can go and leverage. And so as we become a plugged in, relationally invested disciple, we become disciple making disciples who now live, uh, where we live, work, and play, we are impacting the world every single day. How many of you wanna be that type of church? Like this is who we're becoming. Like when we're eyes up, we're knees down, we're Bible open, we're plugged in. And plugged in people, one of the things we're gonna talk about next week, plugged in people live sent out. And we wanna be a sent out type of church and I'll talk about that next week. But it doesn't happen unless we're eyes up, knees down, Bible open and plugged in. Because this right here is where transformation happens. All four of these postures where we're coming, disciple making disciples who then are mobilized by the Holy Spirit to live on mission where we live, where we work, where we play and we see people far from Jesus come to know the ever restoring life that's found in him. Amen? And can I just tell you, the world desperately needs this. Like the world needs a church like this. The world needs it because as we live like this, the world witnesses and watches what happens in the church whenever God is moving in this way. I want you to hear just an excerpt from history. And this is the last thing we'll do. And I want you to listen to a description that is given by a man by the name of Aristides. Aristides was sent from the Emperor Hadrian in 125 AD. Emperor Hadrian was very alarmed by the rapid spread of Christianity. The church of Jesus was exploding. I mean, by the thousands, people were turning from pagan practices and pagan industry was in trouble economically and he hated the church. Curious though, what is the deal that's causing the world to be turned on its head? So here's what he did. He sent a spy to the church. Go and live among them for a season and pretend to be one of them. So that's what he does. And as he experiences the local church, here's the letter that Emperor Hadrian receives. Listen to what is written. Describing the local church, he says, if one or other of them have bondmen or bondwoman slaves or children. Through love towards them, they persuade them to become a Christian. And when they have done so, they call them brethren without distinction. They do not worship strange gods and they go their way in all modesty and cheerfulness. There's a genuine joy. Falsehood is not found among them and they love one another. And from widows, they do not turn away their esteem and they deliver the orphan from him who treats him harshly. And he who has, he gives to him who has not, and without boasting. 
And when they see a stranger, they take him into their homes and they rejoice over him as a very brother. For if they do not call them brethren after the flesh, but brethren after the spirit of God, and whenever one of their poor passes from, uh, from among them, each brethren, according to his ability, give heed and they carefully see to his burial. And if they hear that one in their number is imprisoned or afflicted, and this is for the sake of the gospel, on account of the name of the Messiah, all of them anxiously minister to his necessities. And if it is possible, they redeem him and they set him free. If there is among them any who are poor or needy, and if they have no spare food, they fast for two or three days in order to supply the needy their lack of food. Did you hear that last part? And if there's a brother or sister that's hungry and I don't have extra food, it means I stop eating for a while so I can give my food to you. And Aristides is writing to Emperor Hadrian. He says, I don't know that you're gonna like the answer. It is because there is something different about them. The way that they love one another the way that they are devoted to their Lord, the way that they love the world. There is nothing in this world like the church of Jesus. And can I tell you the same is true today. I believe this with all my heart. There is nothing like the church of Jesus when the church of Jesus is devoted to each other and the mission of God, amen? So here's the heart question for you. And what we're gonna do is I'm gonna ask you this question. And then our band is just gonna lead us for a moment in a song. And I want you to ponder the question before we were dismissed. If Luke, the author of Acts, was to write a description of your life, what would he write? He says about them, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, the fellowship, to the prayer. Would that be said of you? Would they describe your family? Oh man, yeah, and they devoted themselves to the local church, the mission of God. Listen, every single one of us in this room, they would say, and they devoted themselves to. The question for you is what would the rest of that sentence say? They were devoted to their hobbies, to their family recreation. They were devoted to their careers. Uh, They were devoted to their social friends. They were devoted to their success. What would it say of your family? How would they finish that sentence for you? I'm gonna ask you to stand to your feet. And as we worship for a moment, I'm gonna ask you to ponder that. And whatever the Holy Spirit says to you, I want you to confess and repent and be resolved to be plugged in. Amen? Father, we love you. We worship you now. Help us to see where we are in Jesus' name, amen.